The Darklands podcast covers Pacific Northwest true crime and all that it entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you feel distressed, please use your judgment and stop listening or skip ahead to another episode. On the morning of May 7, 1906, Franz Edmund Crefield and his wife Maud were walking down the street near First and Cherry in Seattle, Washington, when a man stepped behind him, placed a 32 revolver to the back of his neck, and pulled the trigger. Edmund Crefield, a.k.a. Joshua II, a.k.a. Elijah, died instantly. The murderer, 23-year-old George Mitchell, calmly stood next to his victim and lit a cigar while he waited for the police to show up. As the wheels of justice turned, George would be hailed a hero by the men in his hometown of Corvallis, Oregon, for the crime that he had committed. His salacious trial would whip up public sympathy, leading to a not guilty verdict. This is only a small part of a completely bonkers historical case that includes murders, plural, women burning their corsets, men tarring and feathering another man, mass committals to insane asylums, suicide by strychnine, plural, and the lure of an enigmatic cult leader that may seem totally bizarre, but isn't all that different than similar cult cases we have seen in the news recently. Buckle up, this one's going to be a wild ride. Welcome to Darklands, Season 1, Episode 7, The Holy Roller Murders. Not much was known about Franz Edmund Crefield, who went by Edmund, prior to him showing up as a captain in the Salvation Army in Portland, Oregon in 1903. It is known that he was born in Germany, but not how he made it to the States, let alone to Portland. The only information we have about him in the historical record is what we can glean about his personality in the jam-packed three years from 1903 to his murder in 1906. We know that he was a small man, slight with light hair and blue eyes. There are only two photos of him that I could find, which is not surprising given the era. His mugshot from when he was arrested for adultery, and an evidence photo depicting the aftermath of when he was tarred and feathered by an angry mob of Corvallis husbands. His photos show a man who wasn't especially attractive. In fact, he was a little creepy looking. But it wasn't his looks that drew people to him. It was his personality, which was reported to be both captivating and hypnotic. Edmund plucked most of his followers from the ranks of the Salvation Army in Oregon, so it's appropriate to start with an understanding of what the Salvation Army is exactly. I'm not sure if this is true in the rest of the world, but in the United States, the Salvation Army is synonymous with folks standing in front of grocery stores during the Christmas holidays, ringing bells, and urging people to drop their spare change into red metal kettles. These are collections for charity, which is another word that is commonly associated with the Salvation Army. Their thrift stores are ubiquitous, and they provide disaster relief, youth programming, and shelters for those experiencing houselessness. What may be lesser known is that the Salvation Army is actually a fairly large Christian religion, with over 1.7 million members internationally, and with a presence in over 131 countries. The Salvation Army, or TSA, was founded in London in 1865 by a former Methodist minister named William Booth and his wife, Catherine. It has its roots in the Methodist religious traditions, such as believing the Bible is the inspired word of God, that we are born with sin, 
that we have free will and that only God's divine intervention can save a person from an eternity in hell. They also place a huge emphasis on the Methodist belief of tackling social ills like slavery, child trafficking, hunger, and disease. The most unique characteristic of TSA is that it adopted a structure of military ranks for members of the congregation at its inception, and individuals can rise through these ranks, from soldier to officers to captains to generals. Women can move up the chain of command just as men can, and people in the church are allowed to marry. It was only recently that the mandate that officers in the church were only allowed to marry other officers was lifted. Still, most couples in the church are married to those that share their same rank. As with any organized religion, there have been controversies regarding TSA, including the church backing anti-LGBTQ rights political movements in many countries. In 2008, in Austin, Texas, a trans woman was denied a bed at one of the church-run shelters because of her gender, only to be found dead in front of the church doors the following morning. As recently as 2013, the church was still referring its LGBTQ members to conversion therapies, which are widely considered to be extremely harmful and traumatic. In addition to these issues involving queer rights, the church has been investigated for widespread sexual assault of children being housed in their care facilities across Australia for decades. In the UK, they've been accused of unpaid labor practices. And, perhaps the least of the controversies they have been embroiled in, was TSA's refusal to accept any charitable toy donations based on Harry Potter or the Twilight series during the peak of their popularity. What is interesting in regards to this case is that the Salvation Army already had such a relatively large presence on the West Coast in the United States, a mere 40 years after being founded, across the pond, as they say. And it is here, in Portland, Oregon, that Edmund Crefield first appears in the annals of history. Edmund was somewhere in his early 30s and had worked his way up to the rank of captain within the church when, in 1903, he publicly declared that he was leaving the church because he believed that they weren't, quote, entirely of God, end quote. And I'm not quite sure what exactly that means. He had been involved in the church for four years at the time that he split from them. During the time that he had been active in TSA, he had done a stint as a missionary in the town of Corvallis, Oregon, and that is where he ended up relocating. Corvallis is a picturesque small city in the Willamette Valley region of central Oregon, which is Oregon's wine country. Corvallis is located within the traditional homeland of the Mary's River or Ampanefu Band of Kalapuya, who, in 1855, were forcibly removed to reservations in western Oregon. Today, living descendants of the Kalapuya continue to live and thrive in Corvallis and western Oregon and are part of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians. Corvallis is 30 miles south of Salem, the capital of Oregon, and 85 miles south of Portland. It is less than an hour from the Oregon coast, so it's incredibly well-suited for access to a host of outdoor recreation opportunities, like skiing, wilderness excursions, wine-tasting tours, and trips down the Willamette River, which border the eastern side of the city. Today, Corvallis has about 58,000 residents, and at the time that these events took place, the population was about 2,000 in the city and roughly 6,800 in all of Benton County, where Corvallis is the county seat. Edmund headed to Corvallis with the intent of starting a new religion. He began calling himself Joshua II and claimed that God had revealed himself to him and was speaking through him. There are going to be a lot of times in this case that seem completely wackadoodle, and I think that that's simply because of the passage of time. 
In reality, this is not an all-too-different story than those that we have heard in recent history, where enigmatic leaders begin making claims that they have the inside track to God and are simply conveying what he has told them. We see this in figures like Jim Jones, David Koresh, and most recently, Chad Daybell. Even so, there are going to be moments that firmly enter the realm of the bizarre, but it is worth being reminded that this kind of stuff still happens all the time. People want something to believe in, and if someone can offer a belief system that makes people feel good and like they belong to something bigger than themselves, and if that person has a lot of charisma, they can make outlandish claims and they will always find a flock to follow them. At first, Edmund, now going by Joshua, had a message that was relatively benign. He preached about the beauty of the Holy Gospel, and he began attracting followers from well-established Corvallis families who were taken with his magnetic presence. One of these was a prominent local merchant, Orlando V. Hurt, or O.V., as he was known, who brought along his family, wife Sarah, daughters Maud and Emily, and son Frank, into Edmund's fold. This, in turn, drew in other well-regarded local personalities, but the church also appealed to outsiders that had faced tremendous difficulty. Other early followers were Donna Starr and Esther Mitchell. Remember that last name. These were sisters whose mother had died when they were children and whose father abandoned them, leaving them and their five other siblings, including brother George, to be raised by different family members. Donna was 23 and married at the time that she joined up with Edmund's group. Esther was 16. Edmund began using O.V.'s residence as the meeting place for his flock, and soon his believers began to accept that God was indeed speaking through his prophet Joshua II. Soon after taking root in the Hurt home, neighbors freaked out when they witnessed an enormous bonfire in front of the house, with the believers throwing all of the Hurt's worldly possessions into the fire. This included a dog and a cat, which, I'm just going to say, don't fuck with the pets, okay? Not surprisingly, the murder of these pets led to speculation that the group was gearing up to practice human sacrifice, but this claim has been debunked. Alarmingly, townspeople saw the tableau play out over and over again in the household of Edmund's followers. He had begun preaching that worldly possessions distracted from receiving God's message, and his followers happily destroyed all that they had. All of this brought attention to the other aspects of the church. Edmund's services were noisy, rowdy affairs, with people rolling on the ground, hollering in a kind of ecstatic trance, and reportedly stripping naked and burning their clothes. These services could last for 24 hours at a time. This earned his group the nickname, the Holy Rollers, which is how newspapers would begin referring to them. Reports about the naked revelries have since been questioned as being maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but it is known that the women burned their corsets, and frankly, who could blame them? and they wore gauzy fabric as dresses that were known as wrappers. The raucousness of these religious services were driving the townspeople crazy with all the noise and chaos, which led them to finally run Edmund and his followers out of the city limits. Edmund moved his group to Kiger Island, a small piece of land resting in the fork between the Willamette River and the Boonville Channel, just south of Corvallis. It was here that Edmund began systematically pushing the men out of the church in an act that's reminiscent of human dirtbag Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs is a name that you might recognize. He is a self-proclaimed leader of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, a polygamous cult that has nothing to do with the actual Church of Latter-day Saints. He pushed all of the young men out of his congregation so that he and his aged cronies could marry, which is code for rape, the very young girls and teens that remained. Jeffs is currently in prison for the remainder of his life for the crimes that he committed.
By all accounts, Jeffs took a move right out of the Edmonds-slash-Joshua II playbook. Men were given the boot, leaving Edmund with a congregation comprised solely of women, many of them teenagers. Only one other man remained, Frank Hurt, son of the original member O.V., who had since left the church. Edmund began to call his religion the Brides of Christ Church. It probably comes as no surprise that shortly after this, Edmund proclaimed that God told him that his followers must cut ties with their husbands, boyfriends, family, etc., because those outside the church were sinful infidels. It is also claimed that he told his followers that they needed to undergo purification, which was something only he could provide through a process of laying hands on them. It is difficult to tell truth from exaggeration when it comes to reporting about what was occurring and the nature of the rituals. Oftentimes, the newspapers use sensationalist language to discuss the goings-on within the church, but I feel like it's pretty safe to say that there was quite a bit of sex initiated in the name of God's will. And I feel like, minus the God part, this is really similar to the Nexium sex cult that was recently in the news. There are even stories in the newspapers at the time of family members searching for loved ones in the Holy Roller group that sound very similar to the pleas Catherine Oxenberg made in the media trying to get her daughter out of Nexium. And I say this as a reminder that this kind of stuff is still alive and well in our present day. Edmund had also made it known that God told him that he needed to impregnate one of his followers in order for her to give birth to the second coming of Christ. He chose 16-year-old Esther Mitchell for this honor. There is no record that Esther ever did have Edmund's child. By now, the men of Corvallis were furious. A group of 20 vigilantes, calling themselves the Whitecaps, went to the island and proceeded to tar and feather Edmund. So I was telling my chiropractor this story, and she had no idea what tarring and feathering is, reminding me not to make assumptions. Tarring and feathering is old-school, frontier-style vigilantism that came to the States by way of the feudal-era Europe. The aim of tarring and feathering someone is to inflict mass public humiliation, and it's usually carried out by a group. The angry mob strips the target either totally naked or down to the waist and either dumps tar on them or paints it on them before rolling them around in feathers. This practice pretty much doesn't occur anymore, but it was really widely used by white supremacists and KKK members in the early 1900s to terrorize the black community. The men that tarred and feathered Edmund told him to get out of town or he would be subjected to worse. Edmund, for his part, totally upped the ante and came back the next day and married Maud Hurt, daughter of O.V., in a small room where witnesses stated that the smell of tar permeated the air. Thus began a game of chicken between Edmund and the men of Corvallis. The vigilante group returned on the day of Edmund's marriage to Maud. This time, they brought a rope. They were done with public humiliation and now had their heads set on murder. But Edmund had disappeared, and Maud was forced to move back with her parents on her first night as a newlywed. At about the same time, Maud's aunt, Donna Starr, of the Mitchell clan, signed a statement saying that she had sex with Edmund as part of a purification ritual when they were visiting Portland, Oregon. Donna was married, and at this time, adultery was a criminal offense. The Multnomah County Courts issued an arrest warrant for Edmund Crawfield, but his whereabouts remained unknown. With their leader nowhere to be found, the women of Brides of Christ Church were bereft. They reportedly spent entire days lying face down on the ground, praying and claiming to receive messages from God. Now the people of Corvallis were really shook. Family members began petitioning the courts to have their kin committed to what were known at the time as insane asylums. 
There were mass committals, with the adults going to the Oregon State Insane Asylum and youth going to the Boys and Girls Aid Society in Portland. Among those that were committed was Frank Hurt, the only remaining male follower, and his wife. The LeGrand Register Guard newspaper referred to the two of them as holy roller agitators. About a month after the mass committals occurred, a young boy was playing near O.V. Hertz's residence when he had cause to go under the house. There, in a hole, the boy discovered an emaciated, wildly bearded man who was literally starving to death. The boy had stumbled onto Edmund Creffield's hideout. Edmund was immediately arrested on the adultery warrant and was sentenced to 17 months in prison. When Edmund Creffield got out of prison, he immediately returned to Corvallis, just long enough to round up what remained of his flock, including his wife Maud and a woman named Cora Hartley and her daughter Sophia. Cora and Sophia had been members of the Brides of Christ Church, but they returned home to Cora's husband, Louis Hartley, while Edmund was incarcerated. However, as soon as the prophet returned to town and called for his followers to join him, Cora and Sophia abandoned Louis. This completely enraged him and many others that saw their loved ones also take flight. Edmund added a new layer to his self-proclaimed mythology, stating that he was now Jesus Christ raised from the dead. His period of incarceration was his death, and now he had been reborn. He told his followers to now call him Elijah. He additionally claimed that God had told him that he was going to smite cities like Corvallis, Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco for being sodomites. A few days later, the massive 1906 San Francisco earthquake hit, which only solidified his followers' belief that he was receiving divine messages. He relocated his group to what was then a tiny town called Waldport, Oregon, on the Alsea Bay between the coastal cities of Newport and Yahats. Here, he had decided to establish what he called a coastal Eden, where he and his followers could live peacefully. But this was not to be. Lewis Hartley, still raging over his wife and daughter rejoining Edmund, tracked the group to the Newport area, where he lost their trail. This was in part because a couple of the Brides of Christ Church had seen Lewis Hartley en route and had given him false information, leading him down several dead ends. Lewis was docking from a ferry returning from Newport to Yaquina Bay after a failed search when he looked across the docks and saw a soon-to-be-departing ferry with who else but Edmund Craftfield on board. Lewis literally jumped off his ferry and ran up to the other ferry, firing a revolver at Edmund. However, Lewis had loaded the gun with the wrong type of ammunition, and his assassination attempt failed. After that, Edmund and his group went into deep hiding. They became itinerant, moving from wilderness to town. Lewis, who apparently wasn't charged with attempted murder, returned to the wilderness camp where he had learned that the Brides of Christ were staying. This time, he brought a shotgun. But the camp was abandoned. In the ensuing months, Lewis and the many other men of Corvallis that had put a target on Edmund Creffield's back could not locate him or his followers, no matter where they looked. Lewis was not alone in his desire for vengeance. Many men were hunting for Edmund. Chief among them was George Mitchell, brother of Donna Starr, who had signed the statement that convicted Edmund of adultery and who was still a loyal follower, and Esther Mitchell, who you will remember Edmund had singled out to bear his child as the second coming of Christ. Somehow, word made its way to Corvallis that Edmund and Maude had left their followers in the Yahats Waldpore area while they made their way to British Columbia, Canada, where they were scouting new locations to build their Eden. The two had stopped in Seattle for what was reported as a shopping trip, 
And that is where, on the morning of May 7, 1906, a determined George Mitchell caught up with them, shooting Edmund slash Joshua II slash Elijah in the back of the head and lighting up a cigar as he patiently waited for the police to arrest him. As he turned himself over to the authorities, he simply said, quote, I have only done my duty. I came here to kill that man as he ruined my two sisters, and I have completed my work, end quote. George Mitchell's trial was, as you can imagine, totally wild. It was O.V. Hurt, Maud's father and Edmund's father-in-law, that footed the bill for an expensive lawyer to defend George Mitchell. The trial was held in King County, Washington, but the district attorney of Multnomah County, Oregon, one John Manning, sent a letter to King County District Attorney Kenneth McIntosh stating that he was familiar with Edmund Craffield. He went on to say that Craffield was a total degenerate and that while taking the law into one's own hands isn't the right thing to do, in this case, George Mitchell was totally justified. He even offered to testify in front of the grand jury so that they would hopefully not indict George for the murder. McIntosh was completely appalled and took a hard pass on Manning's offer. From what I can discern, George Mitchell's lawyers had two defenses that they used to get their client off. First, the defense argued that this was a kind of honor killing. They claimed that there are unwritten laws that allow a man to take matters into his own hands when his sister or daughter has been defiled, and George was simply honoring these unwritten laws. Second, they put up an insanity defense, claiming that George was temporarily insane, driven to madness by the debauching of his sisters Donna and Esther and his niece Maud. This defense was made in spite of the fact that George very clearly told the police and again told the jury at his trial that he deliberately set out to kill Edmund Creffield, which is premeditated murder. Because there was an insanity defense, incredibly lurid details were admitted to the trial that otherwise wouldn't have been. This included descriptions of orgies and free love among the Brides of Christ church group. It is believed that much of the testimony was either outright perjury or extremely exaggerated. In the end, though, it was enough to create a groundswell of sympathy from the jury. It took them only 90 minutes to find George Mitchell not guilty. Full stop. This meant that unlike if they had found him not guilty by reason of insanity, George would have no conditions attached to the verdict, such as having to spend time in an insane asylum. The news of George's not guilty verdict was widely celebrated in Corvallis, and George was sure to come home to a hero's welcome. Two days after being acquitted, George went to the train station in Seattle to head back to Corvallis. He was accompanied by his brother Perry. His other brother, Fred, had reached out to their sister Esther in the days after the trial and encouraged her to reconcile with her brother. So it was with some hopefulness that George and Perry found Esther at the station waiting to greet them. As they got ready to board the train, Esther stepped behind George, pulled a pistol from her pocket, and shot her brother George in the back of the head, exactly the way that he had dispatched Edmund Creffield. George died instantly. The gun used in the execution was bought with witness fees paid to both Esther and Maud Creffield for their participation in the trial. This crime shocked everyone that had been following the events, which were now linked by the moniker the Holy Roller Killings. They also incensed the people of Washington, causing Police Chief Charles Wappenstein to say, quote, I wish these Oregon people would kill each other on their own side of the river, end quote. Seattle's newspaper, the Post-Intelligencer, accused Oregonians of washing their dirty linen in Washington. The judge in the Esther Mitchell case floated the idea of convening an insanity commission to see if they could just call Esther and Maud crazy and save the taxpayer the trouble of funding a trial. This idea was roundly denounced. 
Esther was immediately arrested and charged with murder, and Maud was arrested for her role in the crime. Esther said that God had commanded her to avenge Edmund's murder. She did not, however, want to use an insanity defense. As she put it, she simply did what her brother did, and clearly the law was incapable of holding murderers accountable. She also went on to call BS on George's claim that Edmund Craftfield had, quote, ruined, end quote, his sister. She claimed that she never had sex with Edmund, and that by very publicly claiming that she did, her brother was in fact the one that actually ruined her. If he was let off for avenging her name, then she should be let off for the same reason. She was a pretty shrewd chica. Despite her refusing to claim insanity, the state forced an insanity plea on her, which I don't fully understand. Esther was committed to an institution in Washington. The trial judge had tried to sentence her to the Oregon State Insane Asylum, but Oregon courts let him know that he did not have the jurisdiction to do so. Esther Mitchell was sent to the Western State Hospital in Steelacombe, Washington. While Esther's trial wrapped up, Maud was awaiting her own day in court. Her father, O.V., was completely destroyed by everything that had occurred, but he loved his daughter, so he paid for the attorneys that had represented George Mitchell to defend Maud. Maud, however, would never make it to trial. Somehow, while waiting in jail, she was able to procure some strychnine poison, which she used to kill herself. The Brides of Christ Church essentially ended when Edmund Creffield died. However, there were still those that were bound by their beliefs, and a few followers joined together and moved to Waldport, Creffield's coastal Eden, where they lived as a group, and some reports say they intermarried. Esther Mitchell was released from Western State Hospital in 1909 and joined the group in Waldport. Just five years later, after being married for a few months, she would choose the same fate as Maud and also take strychnine to commit suicide. And while this is the end of the story of the Brides of Christ Church, there's a curious postscript to this story with some familiar echoes. Just a quick heads up that this postscript contains detailed descriptions of suicide, so please skip it if you feel so inclined. In 1975, nearly 50 years after Esther Mitchell's suicide, the town of Waldport, population 700 at the time, was visited by two strangers who had rented out a conference room at the Bayshore Inn. They invited the townspeople to come and hear about their religious beliefs. About 100 community members attended. In the following days, dozens of attendees would sell all of their worldly goods, say farewell to their loved ones, and simply vanish. The disappearance would make the national news, and no one would hear from those that vanished for years. And by then, for many of them, it would be too late. The two strangers were Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, whose followers called them Doe and T, respectively. They had recruited their Waldport followers to join them in the Colorado desert with the rest of their congregation, a group that went by the name Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate members followed the teachings of Doe and T, who promised that they could guide them into a higher evolutionary state. This would allow them to join with celestial beings coming to rescue them on a spaceship that would take them to a beautiful eternity. On March 27, 1997, as the Hale-Bopp comet streaked across the skies of North America, Heaven's Gate members made their final journey. Police would find the bodies of 39 people, dressed identically, lying in bed with bags over their heads. They had committed mass, ritualistic suicide, 
by taking phenobarbital chased with vodka and tying bags around their heads to asphyxiate themselves. They left videos for their loved ones expressing joy that they were finally moving on to a higher plane, catching a ride on a spaceship hidden in the burning tail of the Hale-Bopp comet to the eternity that they had dreamed of. That's all for this episode, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Darklands. Darklands is a free-to-pants production. The Darklands logo was designed by Geoffrey Francoeur. If you have comments or suggestions for Pacific Northwest true crime cases, and especially historical ones because this was really interesting, please email darklandspodcast at gmail.com. A starred review on whichever platform you hear the show on is greatly appreciated. Also, I'm going to fight my hatred of social media and try to get the Darklands Pod Twitter account going. So I will be posting this there and you are welcome to follow Darklands Pod on Twitter and maybe I'll be more active and post things. Until next time, be well and stay safe.